0: been doing a, a series on uh, strategic events and strategic teachings of Jesus. Today we come to today's event, which is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, otherwise known as Palm Sunday. It's kind of a lengthy passage, so I love it when we read together. I think the church should read the scriptures together. Uh, so, but if you get tired, just take a rest as you go. So, Let's read, uh, let's read God's word out loud together. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. The wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. So we want to unpack a little bit of this story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and what we call Palm Sunday. And the first thing that I want you to understand, or I'd like you to to grasp with me, is that this entry is actually a foretelling or a foreshadowing of the of the second coming, of the true coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords of the of the coming of Jesus to make all things right. Now, I want to show you what I mean by that. See, the the crowd, when he came in, and as they yelled out, Hosanna, and as they they put the palm branches out, and they put their cloaks on the road, they thought that was the time he was going to come in, and he was going to make everything right. In other words, he he was going to do what they wanted him to do. But rather, he was coming at that juncture, he was coming to make everything right with God for them. Instead of making everything on the earth right, he was making them right with God in terms of their standing and their status with God. But in this, in this action, there is a picture of what he is going to do as he comes back now in his glory, as he comes back as the risen glorified King of kings and Lord of lords. And there there are pictures in what happened on that Sunday. There are pictures that tell us about what he plans to do. And the first of those pictures is found in the palm branches that you have, some of you in your hand, and some of you were waving as we were worshiping together. You see, there's there's a prophetic action in that that relates back to the purposes and the plans of God for this world. When God designed this world and when he created us, he didn't put us in a factory. He put us in a garden. And he put us in a garden that in many ways he had, he had formed, he had filled it, he had created it, but he didn't complete it because a garden is never complete. A garden is ever-going work. Whether it's seed time or harvest, there's always a cycle in which We were called to participate with God to create, to recreate, and to have something beautiful. But when man sinned, when Adam sinned, everything went wrong. Weeds came, toil came, devastation came, death came. Nothing was ever right again. And Paul describes the nature, the creation, even now, as groaning for the day when things are set right. It's not just you and I who groan, but it's the very earth that God created that groans for this day of redemption. And there's two of these beautiful passages, one in Psalms and one in Isaiah. Psalm uh, 96 and then uh, Isaiah 56 where it talks about when things are set right by the Messiah, when the earth is restored to its original creative beauty without without sin, without curse, it says, the trees will sing. And then Isaiah 56, it says, and they will clap their hands. So you know what? On Palm Sunday, we're doing their job. But we're doing it anticipating. We're not just groaning because we know who he is and we know what he has done. You see, we already know what's going to happen on Friday and we already know what's going to happen on Saturday and we already know what's going to happen when he ascends into heaven. And so until the trees are restored, we get to clap their hands. That's what the palm branches are they're a reminder that the Messiah is not only going to make your, your life set back right, he's going to make his whole creation back right. And when we wave those palm branches, do you know what we're really saying? We're saying we have hope. You know, in many ways, and, and I know maybe you've done it your whole life like I have, and maybe you didn't know what you're doing. It's just kind of fun to have something to hit people with or, or uh, just a wave in, your, in the air. But the truth is, If you're honest, there's frustration in your life. If you're honest, there's been disappointment in your life. If you're honest, it's like, why does it take so much just to get a little bit ahead? And then you take out the palm branch. And you remember, things are not set right yet. Things are on their way. I don't live as if this earth is ultimate. I don't live as one who says, this is my permanent home. This is my citizenship. I wave a palm branch because a Noah day is coming when the trees of their own accord will clap their hands for the one who made them. Now, the second thing is this whole thing about a donkey. I don't know if, I don't know if you love donkeys. Donkeys are cute at a distance. <laughs> okay. But when I've been around donkeys, they just irritate me and annoy me. My last experience, I've tried to really distance myself from donkeys, but my my last experience with a donkey, I was in Mali in Africa, and uh, we we were way out in the bush, and we were staying in this old French colonial house that had no electricity, no running water or anything, but it had these windows that were louver windows made out of metal. 4 a.m. this donkey decided my window was where he's going to... and it hit the metal and just reverberated. I was sure Jesus had returned. <laughs> or at least it was the end of me, one of the two. And all it was was a donkey, this tiny little donkey out there. Well, the donkey's significant in the story. There's a, a, a great New Testament scholar by the name of D.A. Carson, and he, he's the only one I've ever seen that notices this. He says, he says, Jesus is riding an unbroken animal. You know, you can't ride an animal before it's broken, especially a baby donkey riding through a yelling crowd. Humanly speaking, no rider could do this. And then he writes, he says, in the midst of all this, an unbroken young animal remains totally calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature and stills the storm. This even points to the peace of the consummated kingdom. Jesus is the Lord of all, and under his hand nothing but harmony and peace comes about. The animal knows and loves his true master for who he is. This is a foreshadowing of the healing and completion of of all nature as it's found in Isaiah where the wolf shall live with the lamb. Now, (laughs) what I'm about to say might make you mad, but we are way too much like donkeys. We're unbroken, stubborn, independent, do exactly what we want to do, or the the other thing I saw was a donkey that just did what it, what it, the same thing every day in a rut. So that this little boy had a cart, and he was taking his father's uh, uh, goods to, to the place where he sold them. And the little boy did this every day. So he got in the cart, rode, you know, rode with the donkey, fell asleep in the cart because of the gentle rhythm of the cart. So he falls asleep in the cart, stays asleep all the way to his destination. The donkey gets there, stops, turns around, comes right back, and the guy sleeps all the way back. <laughs> so it's like he was on cruise control, and the boy had to do his job all over again because he had, he had slept through, and the donkey just kept doing what it was doing. So there's either this stubborn independent streak, or there's this rut that donkeys get into, that they do the same thing over and over and over again, even if it doesn't accomplish what they set out to accomplish. You see, the only way an unbroken animal can be ridden is if the master and the creator is the one riding, if it's the one, he's the one directing. Otherwise, we stay independent, we stay, we stay stubborn, we stay in ruts, we stay in all these kind of things. If you look at this story and you see this baby donkey who's never been ridden before, has never been broken, and yet in the most anxious and performance-centered kind of circumstances, this donkey is filled with peace. You see, you were meant to be led. You were meant to have a king. You were meant to live and respond to your master. Otherwise, you will not know the peace. You will not know the destiny that God has for you. As we look at the story, too, though, start seeing this kind of unexpected characteristic and also an unexpected way of fulfilling the mission of the king. Uh, One of the people that I like to listen to and read is a a professor at Duke by the name of Stanley Hauerwas. He wrote a commentary on Matthew. Now, he loves to shock a little bit. That's one of his favorite things. So if you ever say, well, Mike said I should what? Well, just know he says certain words that we don't usually say at church. Uh, in order to get his point across, although I enjoy saying them uh, just to get the religious spirits all worked up. But uh, even in this one, he has a little bit of a King James word here, all right? So he says, Jesus is giving us a satire on triumphal entries. On the one hand, this looks like all other triumphal entries. You understand, conquering heroes always had sort of a a ceremony or a procession where they came in and triumphed. and led their captives with them. So he says, this looks like all other triumphal entries. 200 years before Jesus, Simon Maccabeus had defeated foreign armies, kept Israel independent, and he rode into Jerusalem with people shouting cheers and waving palm branches because he delivered them. But this triumphal entry parodies the entries of kings and armies. Victors in battle do not ride into their capital cities riding on asses. ...but on fearsome horses. But this kind does not, and he will not, triumph through force of arms. This is an unexpected king. You you think about, if you watch any of the Roman stories, you'll see Caesars coming in. They're riding on mighty stallions with all of their defeated foes behind them. See, Jesus chose a baby donkey, which is almost comical. It's very deliberate and clear in fulfillment of Scripture... He's coming in to rule, and he's coming in to save, but not by taking power and killing, but by losing power and dying. He's going to triumph through weakness. His followers can only come to salvation by repenting and admitting their needs. We're not saved by our good works or a strong Savior who does good works and says, be like me. Oh, that's so powerful if you'll let it come in. See, I grew up in a mainline denomination. And in that denomination, the gospel had been lost. And so church was where you go because you're a good person. It was where you go because you're a moral person. And instead of being a savior, because we we really were good and moral people, we really, really didn't need a savior. We just needed a teacher. Or we need an example. So Jesus became in the denomination I was a part of, Jesus became a good moral example with good moral teaching. And so the job of every Christian, they said, was simply to do like he did. But they had missed what he had done. They had misunderstood. They thought he had ridden in on a stallion when he rode in on a baby donkey. Jesus doesn't say, do good works and be like me. He realizes you're not strong. You can't live up to his example. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way and the Lord was pleased to lay on him the iniquity of us all. It's salvation through weakness so that you and I can realize that it's not on the basis of works or performance or doing better than other people or justification by comparison, but rather it's a free grace. It's an undeserved, it's an unmerited love and favor of God kind of salvation. And not only is it in spite of our sins, it's actually because of our sins. It's so funny how we get this. Maybe you never got it screwed up, but I have watched it be screwed up. Like the table of the Lord when it's sitting here and the way that it was presented when I was a kid is you can't come here unless you're good. And the more I study it, I go, you can't come here unless you know you're bad. You can't come here unless you know you're weak. You can't come here unless you know you're in need. In other words, as long as you're willing to admit you have a need, anybody can get in not the religion of the strong. It's the religion of the weak. It's a relationship with a Savior who in his weakness saved us. Not by killing, but by dying. Well, if you think about this whole day, there's expectations that this crowd has. They, they don't notice that he's riding in on a donkey. just—they just, they, just they just want a hero. They just want a victor. They just want a conqueror. So what happens is this story reveals that when we go to God, we go with expectations and we go with frameworks about what we need already. So we're, we're coming to God, in a sense, telling him to save us, but telling him how. Notice the, the phraseology in Palm Sunday, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna can become a very religious sort of word that you know to say in church, like hallelujah or praise the Lord or Uh, all these other things, but really has no heart meaning anymore to you. But the word literally means, God, save us. So it's from the get-go. If you say Hosanna, you're expressing need, you're expressing weakness, you're expressing passion. Save us. Isn't it interesting how when bad things happen, people start to turn to church or turn to god or turn to religion in some way. It was a fascinating thing to watch after 9/11 the attendance of churches soared. Even in New York City they soared. People were going back to church. But then once the crisis was sort of neutralized in a sense, attendance went back down again. One pastor tells a story of of a person calling him from the hospital, "Pastor, come quickly." I've gotten a diagnosis that I have cancer and I have a very short amount of time to live. Please come. So the pastor drops everything races to the church, gets to the guy's hospital room. The the patient looks at him and says, Pastor, it's okay. They gave me somebody else's diagnosis. I'm fine. I guess he's never going to die. I don't need you anymore, Pastor, because I'm not going to die. See, what do these people think that they need it from God? What are, they, what are they saying when they say Hosanna? Well, they're saying, God, we're the good guys. Bring judgment down on those that are ruining our world. Get rid of the Romans. That's what they were really asking. They're looking for somebody who's going to beat the Romans and then let them be kings themselves. Let them be in charge. What they really needed, though, that they did not know that they needed, was someone to come and bear the judgment for them, to bring pardon and to reconcile them to God. In some ways, this story is often confused, but I think it's really powerful and simple in what it's trying to say. And I think it goes all the way back again to the Garden of Eden. When the humans had failed and sinned, and when sin became part of their very nature... And when death had entered into the world and destruction and corruption. And, and in some ways, do you know all that frustration you feel and that disappointment you feel and all of that, that all of that is the remnants of the curse. I mean, even this garden that God put us in, it became hard to make flowers grow, but easy for weeds. And so God in His mercy veiled. The tree from which they could eat, which would give them eternal life, because he didn't want them to live forever groaning, or live forever aching for something they could never have, always getting close and having it ripped away from them. In the same manner, when Jesus comes in, he's not offering in a he's not offering to be the king. In the sense that they want him to be the king. He's not offering that. Because even if he had defeated the Romans, the problems would have still been there. The issue would have still been there. They would have lived with a king who had to destroy them as well as the Romans. You see, without Good Friday, there is no new life. Unless sin is atoned for, and it doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious, if you're Jewish or you're Gentile, the sin that besets us is common to all of us. And to have a king when you're still in your sin, and to have a king when you're still in your corruption, is cruelty. So first the king had to become the servant. So we who are actually servants would stop trying to be kings. He can come back now to this earth, and he can end evil without ending you and without ending me. Are you hearing me today? Well, there's two implications then of this. One is there's never been a better example of the worthlessness of human celebrity than Palm Sunday. Now, some people dispute this, but Jerusalem was not, it was a big city of its day, but it wasn't a big city. It probably didn't have more than 60 to 100,000 people, so it wasn't a huge city. It wasn't a big place, and so when something happened, the whole city would know about it, and so there's some sense in which when Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry is happening, everybody in the city knows about what's happening, so there's A good possibility that the ones who said Hosanna and called him the son of David probably within a week become disillusioned with him. He doesn't do what they want him to do. He doesn't accomplish what they want him to accomplish. And so it's very possible, even likely, that some who said Hosanna also said crucify him. In other words, think about this. There's a fickleness to the mob mentality. There's a fickleness to corporate human nature. What is regarded one day ceases to be regarded the next. And so you have to begin to say, if something is that fickle, how much should it be worth to you? Here's what I say. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He regarded you before you were born. He regards you now, and he will regard you for eternity. If you are in Christ Jesus, then you are a son or a daughter of God. His approval is upon you. The words that are worth living for and the words that are worth hearing are well done, faith good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. See, God's regard is different. Human celebrity is nothing. Palm Sunday is also an incredible parable of the lifelong mismatch of what we think we need and what God has provided. See, this is not going to be easy for some of you to hear, but the truth is that all of us, when it comes to what we think we need, what we think we need is actually very shallow. It's very superficial, and it's often contradictory. Within your heart is a, 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 a multitude, actually, of desires that contradict one and another, and only God knows what you really, really need. So when when God does certain things in your life in the short term because of the contradictions of the heart, what he does can feel very confusing to us. Here's what the promise of God is. Uh, This is one of the quotes I like. Please keep in mind that when you come to him, he will give you what you really need and will in the long run, all of that will exceed all of your expectations. Here's what you've got to hear. God always gives you what you would have asked for. Stay with me. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he does. See, many of us, when we begin our prayer lives and we begin to pray, we we just pray whatever we think we want or need or what we think we have to have. And then often what happens is God does not answer yes to what we've prayed. For example, people will come to me and they'll say stuff like, I just got to have this promotion, pastor. Please pray. I've got to have it. I just don't know what I'll do if I don't get that promotion. I say, I'm not going to pray that. I said, because that's an idol. And what you've said is that's your ultimate. That's your life. That's your source. That's your priority. And so, in other words, prayer and God is a means to your ends. And God refuses because of who he is he refuses to be the means unless he's the end. In some ways, you will never have your treasure if God is not your treasure. But if God is your treasure, he will give you all of himself as your treasure. And he will answer every prayer from that perspective. And so what he's doing in all of our lives is he's revealing how superficial how shallow, how egocentric we are, all of those things. But at the same time, wherever you're seeing good things happen, he's saying, that's what you really need. Now, there are many of us, when we go through pain or we go through suffering, the first thing we say is, why, God? Why didn't you prevent this? Why are you letting this happen? And the enemy comes in and says, see, he's not good. See, he doesn't know what you need. See, he doesn't care about what you need. And what he does is the enemy builds a wall by accusation between you and the only true comfort that you have. The God of all comfort will comfort you. He even says words like this, blessed, in other words, flourishing, fulfilled, satisfied, is the one who mourns because they will be comforted. And yet the enemy says, go to pain relief. And he speeds you to destruction because he knows how shallow we are. Do you not know? Have you not come to understand? The enemy of your soul never directs you to life. He directs you to death. He believes that you will stay shallow. You will stay superficial. That you will not do, as this passage is beginning to help us understand, God is doing for us what we need him to do. Even when we're confused, God is doing for us what we need Him to do because He knows the end of your life from the beginning. If you knew what He knows, you would pray what He answers. I don't think I can say that again. (laughs) If you knew what He knows, you would pray. What he answers. How do I know that? Well, think about this verse. If you abide in me, so that's connection. That's you beginning to merge your life, your agendas, your will, your desires with him, that you begin to say, You're not just in my life, you are my life. If you abide in him, and then he says, And then if my words, Jesus' words, abide in you, so then that's obedience. That's not just, that's not just a, a child's obedience to mom. You know, I'll take the, I'll take the trash out, mom, when the next commercial, because you figure she'll forget. <laughs> and then finally you take it out, stomping, leaving uh, liquids all over the place and everything, and then you want her to say, good job. Yeah. That's a child's obedience and a childish obedience, because you do it but there's nothing about abiding in it. There's no word abiding in you. And many people, they do the minimum requirement. <laughs> when I was a youth pastor, one of my things I hated most was to talk on dating. Because every kid was like, how, how close to the line can I get? Yes. Is it right to do this? Is it right to do that? Because we want to know the minimum requirement. That's not what he's talking about. He says, if I am your life, if you're abiding in me as your life, and then my words... Are abiding, remaining, defaulting in you. Then he says, You can ask anything you want, and it will be done for you. That, I have people come to me and they'll go, I just don't know. My life, my spiritual life is so dry. My prayers are so ineffectual and everything. I said, Well, tell me about your life. Well, I'm living with my girlfriend. We're having really great sex, you know. I said, Well, there's, there's a reason. He says, If my words are not abiding in you, then you can't ask whatever you will and it be done because now that disobedience is framing your prayers because you you already said, I don't want your kingship in this area. How will you ask for his kingship in another area? And yet he's so faithful that as screwed up as we are and as off track as we can be and out of alignment as we can be, he still wants to love on you and answers what you would have asked if you knew what he knew. So what's happening is, whether you like it or not, he's training you to pray. Because he's teaching you by his answers what you really need. Now there's a characteristic of God that's difficult for us in some ways, and that is he changes not which can feel when you're trying to change him like he's stubborn. (laughs) I've seen people that they get to a certain point in their spiritual life, and he's asking them to go deeper, and they say, nope, not going to do it, not going to do it, not going to do that. And so they don't want to be irreligious, so they go off into peripheral things. Like they start figuring out, what does the book of Revelation have to say about when the end times will come? And they figure out exactly, I think it'll be in 19... you know, Some of them said 1976, some said 1984, and all of these things, because you can, you can fill your mind to where you go, wow, those grasshoppers in the Revelation, they must be attack helicopters from Iraq or something. <laughs> and they're just searching the scriptures to see where Russia is in, the Re- in Revelation, where's America, there's an eagle in the Bible, it must be America. <laughs> None of these things help you be obedient, but they distract you from your disobedience. And guess what? When you realize this isn't working either, you have to go right back where God says, come on, right here, right to this place. Because if you see, again, can you hear this? If you knew what he knows, you'd quit fighting him. And you'd let it unfold where he wants it to unfold. Well, some of you are still here, so that's good. Though he is gentle and though he is humble, there has never been a confrontational king like Jesus. See, this is the beginning of a reversal of all of his previous strategy. If you remember, in the past when blind eyes were opened, when the lame walked, when the lepers were cleansed and healed, he would always say to them, go and present yourself, but don't tell anybody. Well... In this passage, a new day has dawned. And you begin to realize that when these blind men begin to announce, Hosanna, this is the Son of David. And they're saying the Son of David has, has given us sight. When they say that, Jesus doesn't say, be quiet. Jesus accepts their praise. Not only that, he accepts them calling him Son of David, which means Messiah. And so he's beginning to publicly proclaim. This is the first time, this, that particular Sunday, was the first time he began to let it be known, this is who I am. Now, he also rides into the city to the cry, Hosanna, God save us, which is another messianic statement, and he accepts this. He accepts their public declaration, their worship. He goes into the temple, and when he talks about the temple, he says, my house. Now, only God can call the temple his house. So he's publicly now declaring himself the messianic king, where he is basically now saying to the people, crown me or kill me. Crown me or kill me. Wow. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. See, why has he done it up till now? Because he knew the day would come where the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they would all have to deal with him. And he has made it soft and indirect up to this point. But at this point, his day is coming. He is orchestrating Friday. He is orchestrating this whole thing. He's in charge. He's moving intentionally. He's saying, it's time. You'll have to deal with me now. I I like what Tim Keller says about this. He says, I'd like you to consider what this means to you. Jesus is the only person that I've ever known, he said, who is unbelievably humble, but not modest. What I'm going to ask you to do in this, this, these last points is this. You cannot, friends, you cannot have Jesus at arm's length. When Jesus is at arm's length, all you are is messed up and confused. He is confronting us today just like he does every day. And basically he's saying, crown me or kill me. Crown me or kill me. Now let me... Let me just contrast that a little bit. He's tender, he's sweet, he's been gentle with women and children, which people weren't in that day. Women and children were of a lesser status than men. He's been sweet and tender with the poor, with prostitutes, with the people of other races and nations. But at the same time, this humble, tender Jesus is in no way modest at all. Look at these outrageous claims about him. People who make outrageous claims... About themselves are not usually modest. An essayist wrote this. His name is Reynolds Price. I think he passed away recently, but it's a powerful essay on the gospel. He said If 2,000 years of pious handling had not dimmed our understanding of the story's demand, his gospel would still be seen as the burning outrage it continues to be. It is either a work of madness or a blinding revelation the acts it portrays, the claims it advances, from the very paragraph demands that we make a hard choice. If we take the gospel writers seriously, we must finally ask the question he thrusts so flagrantly toward us. Does he bring us a life-transforming truth, or is this one gifted lunatic's tale of another lunatic wilder than he? Let that sink in for a minute crown me or kill me. He's not trying to be liked. He's not trying to be popular. He's trying to say, this is who I am. Take me as I am or take me not at all. It's so interesting around here and kind of in the whole tri-state area is people are really excited about the love of God. They're pretty excited about grace. But they're not very excited about Lord. Lord. They're not very excited about one who says, you have to get off your throne. That the issue in your life is that you want to be king and have everybody and everything and all the circumstances around you serve you. And why it is essential, but also it makes sense at some point to say, this just doesn't work for me. I mean, I think... When we're honest, and particularly in my life, I, I I wanted Jesus to empower my kingship, or to empower my control freakness, or to empower people doing what I wanted them to do and carrying out the agenda that I had for them, and he would not do that. But what I kept seeing in the gospel that so changed my heart is: here is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who comes as a servant. That he comes on a donkey, on a baby donkey. That he comes not to kill, but to die. That he's willing to be treated as I deserve to be treated so that I can be treated as he deserves to be treated. And he broke my heart. Just as life had disappointed me, and, and people had betrayed me, and even the church had let me down, what I realized is me being king was a terrible thing. See, the sin is when the servant tries to be king, and salvation is when the king becomes a servant. And no no matter what you do, you will never be the king of your own life in a way that's in any way satisfying to you. You will not flourish. You will not thrive. But when he, the king, came to serve serves as king of your heart things become radically different and it's, it's essential there was this talk on lordship that I heard about that kind of that touched me a, a lady was a bible teacher she said my name is Barbara Boyd if you say to me come in Barbara but Boyd can't come in that really doesn't work for me she said you can't say come in savior stay out lord Come in helper, stay out king. Crown him or kill him. Does that make sense today? Not just if you abide in him, but also his words have to abide in you as well. You can't live independently. You can't be the king. He will not enable your kingship. He will not empower your self-centeredness. He will dethrone it. And in dethroning it, he will ask, crown me. Let me, let me close with this thought for you. I can make this argument for you, and I, I've tried to make it as persuasively as I can, but nobody can be crowned on, on the throne of your heart if you won't let them. He is the king. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's shown you what he's like. And here's what's happened to me over the years is the more that I've known him and the less I've put him at arm's length, the more I have grown to love him and the more I am relinquishing the throne. But I've seen people who mistakenly don't realize how shallow they understand their own needs, who uh, invite him into their life to be what they want him to be. He will never be that. He's going to come into the temple of your heart, and he's going to cleanse it. And he's going to come into your spiritual blindness, and he's going to give you sight. But in doing so, he's going to radically change you. But for that to happen, you have to say, I crown you. Will you stand with me? Are you, I mean, this was somewhat of an intense teaching in a way. Although you should get used to that. I try every week. For me, it's a whole. It's been a whole different. It's been a very different way of looking at Palm Sunday. You know, from the hope of the future, it helps me to look at my life now and the frustrations and the places where I ache, the places where I'm unfulfilled. And it helps me to look. And even those palm branches today remind me he's coming. He's coming. That everything's groaning till that happens. He's coming. And, it, and it, the picture in the Bible is that when he comes, he will come as the conquering king. And either those of us who are alive, who've been working his kingdom here, he will let us know and we'll go to meet him. Or if we've already gone on, we will come with him. But when he comes, you will not be left out. And you'll get to see all that stuff you've been groaning for and all that stuff you've been saying it's not fair and all the stuff you've been saying, when's this going to happen? And it's all going to go, oh, wow, this is what I was made for. See, I'm convinced that when you look in his eyes, you're not going to say, I got some questions for you. When you look in his eyes, you're going to say, it was worth it. It was worth it. And when you hear his voice, because you ever notice something that the people who really love you say your name in a way no one else says it? And just by the tone, you know, like I, my mother, when she was mad at me, it was never Mike. It was, you <laughs> know. You know? And with my wife, who, who loves to come up with weird names for me, Like her name now for me, because the fixer-upper is Bud. Because Joanna Gaines calls Chip Gaines Bud. And I'm like, I don't like that. But I know it's her. Because the way she said, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I call them by name. I can guarantee you this. No one says your name like Jesus. And the one who's saying your name in your heart is the king of kings. And the Lord of lords. And he's saying right now, crown me. Crown me in your life. Crown me in your heart. Crown me in your needs. Let me show you what you really need. Because if you knew what he knows, you would pray what he answers. Would you bow your heads I'm going to do something old-fashioned here today. There's a sense, whether it's for the first time or it's for the 100,000th time in your life, would you crown him king of your heart? And as you do it, would you just lift both your hands up as if you're putting the crown on his head, just lifting it up to him and saying, Lord, I crown you." You know, I think Jesus is all right if you're also saying, I'll kill you. I don't think he wants in between. I don't think there's neutral ground. I don't think there's a middle ground. Basically, this week, this holy week, he said, either crown me or kill me. And the people chose kill him. But you and I, we can enthrone him right here, right now. You are my king. You say that with me? You are my king. You are my king. king. Lord, will you seal what you're doing now? In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Hopefully we'll see many of you on Friday. We are believing God for physical healing on Friday. So come and and, uh, we'll be together. God bless you. Have a great week.